Hello, and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Casper Melville, and in this broadcast, we'll be talking about life in India's Muslim ghettos with the writer Jeremy Seabrook. A prolific author, Seabrook has written 37 books in a career spanning more than 40 years, including The Unprivileged, Landscapes of Poverty, Travels in the Skin Trade, and Notes from Another India. In his latest book, People Without History, published by Pluto Press, Seabrook returns to India, in particular to Calcutta, a city he has been visiting for 30 years, to investigate the lives of those at the very bottom of Indian society, occupying the Muslim ghettos such as Topsia and Tiljala. Through careful observation and interviews with the residents, Seabrook, together with his co-author Imran Ahmed Siddiqui, paints a powerful and shocking picture of the lives of people at the wrong end of globalisation. One of the great achievements of the book is to bring home how it actually feels to live in these places, how they look and feel. So I start by asking Jeremy to describe Topsia, the sprawling ghetto running along the canal front that appears in most maps of Calcutta only as a blank space. First of all, the thing in the poorest part of Topsia, the thing is that the canal, which is a kind of channel for wastewater. And so the first thing you notice is the smell. There's a kind of smell of decaying garbage and sewage. And the second is the way in which the huts have been constructed out of industrial debris, um, uh, old bamboo, wood, boxes uh, and, and old bags of fertiliser and phosphate, all kinds of stuff. It's a very improvised looking place. It's very stony, There's no the, the houses are very close together, there's, there's just about room to trundle a cart where people are selling, you know, mouldy bananas and specked oranges and very, very poor quality goods that are on sale for the people who live here because this is perhaps one of the worst areas in Kolkata and it's very, very crowded, very, very densely inhabited and as you as you walk in the, the thoroughfare you see lots of people who are um, obviously addicted to drugs. I mean, so it's a, it's a major outlet for opium, ganja, heroin, people who are seriously addicted. And you only have to just open one of the curtains that stand in, in, in front of the doors of the huts and you can see uh, uh, six or seven, eight young men who are kind of stoned out of their mind. And it's all done in, in broad daylight in front of all the kind of officials, the, the police, the local authority, the local communist party. Actually, of course, the communist party's just been defeated in West Bengal for the first time in the third of a century. So that's a kind of major event. It won't make any difference to these people who are living there in very, very sparse interiors with a kind of old tin chair, a trunk, a string with some changes of clothing on the across the across the um, bedroll. Sometimes a huge wooden bed fills the whole room in which maybe a whole family sleeps. Everybody is working. The other thing is that people are sitting on the threshold, women especially, and they're working at cutting away the superfluous rubber from sandals that are made with are moulded in local factories. Or they're making snacks and selling them in the streets. Everybody is doing something, even the young children, young girls, 14, 13, 12. So just to orientate ourselves a little bit, we're in Calcutta, in West Bengal. When did you actually go? Well, I mean, I've been going there for about 10, 15 years, so it's not a new experience I in see. that sense. So you've... you've but you've only chosen to write about it now, but it, you've That's been right. visiting it for That's a long right. time. That's right, so I know it quite well over a long period. And actually what's happened is that the slum areas of, of Calcutta have changed considerably. 
So what I'm talking about now by the, the canal of Topsia is a very um, archaic form of, 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 of dwelling for people, this old kind of in, industrial rubbish, which, which at one time all slums were made like this. But now increasingly what's happened is that people have either got a bit better off and made their houses out of tin, corrugated metal and, and, and rough brick, or they are renting rooms in very roughly made and illegal shelters which are um, four stories high, they're brick buildings, mostly they're illegal, so they have no right to remain there, they could be um, demolished at any time. So although apparently it looks as though the worst of the slums are being eliminated, what's happening is that poverty is being stacked up inside high-rise illegal dwellings and inside they are just as crowded, insanitary, dark, fetid and unpleasant as the things they replace, but they're no longer so visible to the to, to, to the visitor from outside. You look at me, oh, they're buildings, people are living okay, but you go inside... So there's an impression that there's some sort of exactly. uh, uh, progress going exactly. on, but actually they're being sort of hidden away and stacked up. That's right, and there are two things happening, I think, with the, with the, with the urban poor. One is they're being, put, they're being stacked vertically. Also, the second thing is compression. They're being squeezed into a smaller and smaller area of the city space, because as the middle class expands, so uh, new areas are taken over for development. So you get all these uh, building sites with artists' impressions of things like called Mayfair Towers or Barclay Villas, and they're kind of idealised, you know, views of what these places will be. And of course, they're rising up in, in in slum areas. So whoever moves in won't want the eyesore of the poor people living close. So you can see their next lot of ripe for eviction. So it's a constant sense of of, of movement and change. Slums are not static. They're in a state of ferment of, of economic activity and also of social upheaval and people being removed and shoved out either to the far periphery or put into, into uh, rented high-rise. One of the most powerful things about the, your book is the way in which you meet real people and you tell something of their stories and you, you, you describe some of the things that people do. Can you just just repeat one of a story of one or two of the people that you, that you met just to give us a real sense of you know, what, what it's like to live there. We met two boys who were begging. One was about 20 and his friend was about 13. And they were singing. And the boy, the 13-year-old, was accompanying the, the song with two stones to make rhythm, two pebbles that made a kind of rhythm. And he was doing the singing. He had a charming, beautiful, beautiful voice. He was singing sort of devotional songs. And his companion who had only one leg and one arm, had actually been caught stealing in the public transport on the buses and had been so severely beaten by the passengers when he was caught that his wounds became infected and he lost a leg and an arm. So that is also a story that you hear about untreated wounds. Now, um, one of the things you talk about, you go into a factory and underlying this, I mean, you mentioned this reference a couple of times, which is that there's a kind of Dickensian nature to the world that these people are occupying. I mean, it's more than Dickensian. I mean, it's part of our heritage. It's like the imagery of, you know, 19th century, the, the idea of what the north of England was, the manufacturing sector in Britain, what it used to be. Um, uh, it's, it springs to vibrant life there in all of these cities in South Asia. They're very, very overcrowded. They're hot. They're humid. The people work very long hours, the pay is very poor. The only difference you would say in a place like 
these these slums in Kolkata is that um, the people have the, the smile of Bengal. So in a sense, they don't present an aspect of misery as you might imagine from you know Dick, Dickens's account of the like, misery of you know, Joe the crossing sweeper. <laughs> yes. But they've got a kind of absolutely silver smile on their faces, and of course the sil the smile of Bengal is famous. But one shouldn't take it at its face value because it also conceals centuries of expropriation, loss, driven migration, involuntary separations. And so, in a sense, it's deceptive, but it's a, a, a startling contrast with, say, the generally miserable faces of people you might meet on the tube in London. Talking of Dickensian, at one point you make reference to to Jarndyce and Jarndyce, which is, of course, the famous legal case in Bleak House, where the the, the poor people are wrapped up in kind of layers of bureaucratic uh, judicial procedures, which ruins their lives. But you met one particular person who had a similar kind of tale. There was a man who was appointed, he was a, a Muslim guy, who was appointed to the inspectorate of the, the food inspection of restaurants in Calcutta. And he was appointed something like... Uh, 27 years ago, and between getting his letter of appointment and actually starting his job, 25 years elapsed without any explanation whatsoever. Partly, of course, it was because he was a Muslim, but partly also because powerful interests were trying to get hold of the small property he owned. But he sat for 25 years, going from pillar to post, looking for some kind of redress, and eventually, eventually he met a a Muslim MP at some big electoral gathering, who finally got him instated in his post in the official bureaucracy one month before he was due to retire. So he drew one, one month's salary, and then he was retired. And now, the last I heard, he was struggling to get a pension for those years in which he was officially employed but never did any work. The subtitle of your book is well, it's called People Without History, but the subtitle is India's Muslim Ghettos. So let's talk about the fact that these people are Muslim. I mean, there's an obviously a historic way in which, after the partition and what happened there, yes. but it appears, your story appears to be suggesting that there's actually, that's getting worse rather than better. Well, it seems to me there's been an increasing communalization of poverty in, um, in, in Calcutta, which is the place I know best, because these slums that where we were working were they were must have been about 90-95% Muslim and there were a few Christians because they're one or two old Anglo-Indian enclaves and there are a few low-caste uh, Hindus as well but they're overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Muslim and they're concentrated in these areas where they're, the lar a large proportion of the people here are recycling rubbish from the consumer society which has now hit India in a big way and you can see the the recycling the salvaging everything and the only thing that's wasted is the people and their energies and their bodies um, and and these these poor Muslim communities are seen by many many people as being you know places where extremism fundamentalism terrorism are concealed and nothing could be further from the truth there isn't any evidence of that. There's absolutely, I mean, minimal evidence. There's, there are some antisocial elements, there are people who deal drugs, there are people who are, do who are petty criminals. But even if you go into the police stations, they, they're kind of, you know, somnolent, inactive places where nothing much happens. Certainly, 
um, you feel safer walking in the slums of Calcutta than you would walking in certain parts of London uh, late at night. So they don't have a rabble rousing imams, people trying to recruit the poor and disenfranchised into not in global the, Islamism. No, not, not in the slightest. And I think one of the things about the about very poor people is they're too busy surviving to worry too much about eternity. So they are so kind of caught up in the business of the here and now that their immortal souls have to put, as it were, on hold because life is so consuming life consumes their every ounce of energy and strength so in many ways uh, you could say a great majority of the people are only nominally Muslim but they serve for the mainstream society as a kind of toxic dump for all the kind of hatreds and prejudices that exist in all societies so I think they have a double role not only do they recycle waste in toxic dumps they themselves are the human toxic dumps the hatred and intolerance of others. Um, let's pull back a little bit and just talk about y yourself and your own feelings. I mean, I, I haven't been to India, but I know that the people I know who've been, I have been to, to poor parts of Africa. It's a, it's a very difficult uh, situation to be in because one feels an enormous amount of sympathy and sort of tenderness towards people worse off than yourself and an enormous amount of guilt because, you know, there's only so much you can do. Um, how did that look to you? I mean, throughout the book, you don't you don't bang on about this, but there are certain moments in which you can really strongly feel your desire to help people. Or there's one point at which a, a, a someone who's been a lifelong companion and servant to a prominent lawyer who has then been turfed out by the family offers his services to you, and you obviously have to say no. Or a young boy wants you as his mentor and holds onto your hand, and you have to say goodbye. And you can feel you don't. You don't wallow in sentimentality there, but there is this strong feeling. How, just talk about how, how you felt and how, how the reader can feel. Because one of the things is that can put people off even looking at this issue because it seems so overwhelming and one feels so powerless in relation to it. I mean, what's happening in India now is that there's a huge middle class has evolved. And so the image of India has, has changed in the world. And instead of like the outstretched hand and the supplicant and the begging bowl, it's now the kind of consumer industry, it's now the kind of fleshy excesses of Bollywood. So that in some senses has kind of eclipsed the poor, but it hasn't made them go away. It makes them less conspicuous in the global iconography of what's happening in the world. You know, when you look at the TV, you see India, you'll see, um, even if you see something like Slumdog Millionaire, it doesn't deal with the real lives of people in, the, in those places. Um, and of course, the story is always that they're lifted out of it. But there must be, I think the urban population of India now is something like about um, 300 million. Um, and it, it's, it'll increase rapidly over the next 20 or 30 years. So urban poverty rather than rural poverty is going to be the story of the future. And when you see it, it just is simply, um, it, it, it is overwhelming. But you can go through the Indian cities and not see it at all because it's being increasingly marginalised. They are, they're, they're increasingly uh, invisibilised. And I think that's part of the whole kind of global project is to render the poor invisible. And the idea is that, well, we've been there, we've been through this. They'll go through it and emerge into the kind of sunny uplands of universal consumerism as we have. Um, and it's seen as a stage of development. And that, of course, begs all sorts of questions about whether the earth can bear the people of India, everybody in India and everybody in China living at the 
level that we do. So, there, it, I mean, it raises, it raises so many questions. But on the level of, of, of just responding to, to, human, to human suffering and need, actually you, 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 you help a few people selectively, but you can't actually do anything about it. And what you also can't do these days, you can't even effectively write about it and represent it to people in power because they don't want to know because the corporate ideology which has gripped India as well as the rest of the world has eliminated the poor from its landscapes so in a sense we're living through a kind of we're living through a kind of global pretense that we are dealing with I mean what are, what are these millennium goals which are going to be missed anyway but what are they that it's about the dwindling rump of the global poor um, and actually, these people are the major players in the world. And they're a majority in the world still. Just because they've been kind of landscaped into invisibility doesn't mean they don't exist. And I think in that way, they they serve as a great danger. The people in, in Topsia, Tangra, Tiljala that I was writing about in Kolkata, they themselves are not going to rise up they're not going to create acts of terror, they're not going to plant bombs, but there will be those who observe the sufferings of those they see as their fellow Muslims, and like all revolutionaries, will invoke them as their kind of ghost army of supporters for any atrocities they care to commit. So I think in dealing with the whole question of, of you know, what you, the whole story of, of terror, while you leave neglected populations to wallow in indifference and misery, you are indirectly feeding the people who are against us, as yeah. George Bush said. Well, one of the things that, um, uh, in terms of, it, very evidently in what you just said, one of the things that you do, one of the processes, and in a way it's the kind of heart of politics, is that you are, as it were, yourself, a factory for turning sympathy for people's human condition into anger or into a kind of into a you know in the way that you do because you you know you sounded angry and you are angry about it and you are also motivated to do something about it one of the sort of ways in which you appear quite angry in this book is with what you might call the failed promise of the left you referred earlier to the fact that there's been a marxist government in this area for a long long time who haven't come up with the goods and that there are a lot of people believed in that and believed and and you that you may have even believed in that. What, are, are you? Are, is that is that a fair representation? Are you angry with what they haven't done? Do yes, yeah, so, and also possibly with what they couldn't do, because in a sense, I mean, the left was in power in for one third of a century in, in in West Bengal, and in the initial stages, what they actually they they did some very useful agrarian reform, which was absolutely fine. So their their constituency was fundamentally in the uh, rural areas, but they they actually destroyed the already decaying industries of Calcutta, which like were partly remnants of the Raj. And so industry deserted Calcutta and impoverished it even further. And then they did a kind of about turn and started to you know, reintroduce the IT sector and try to induce people to come to, to re-industrialised Calcutta they had laid waste. And they've had very limited, they had some, some success in it. But in the process also of re-industrialising, what they did, where their great mistake was to offer land to industrial uh, houses, some of them foreign from Indonesia as well as some, some India, they offered Tata a, a site, and just cleared 
the owners, the, 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 the workers on the land, the labourers and the peasants off. So in fact, the, the very constituency which supported them became victims of their own ideological desperation. And in a way, you can say that, I mean, they've been elected fairly for the last, um, you know, third of a century, but that moment has now come to an end. So what you see is the exhaustion of leftism and its electoral uh, um, quietus, really, in West Bengal this time. They won't come back. Now, I downloaded a list of the books that you've written in your career, and it's, well, it fills all the pages that I'm holding in front of me. It's a phenomenal publishing record, but there seems to be some underlying themes. So it's not just about India, obviously. Mm. It's not just about poor Muslims. How does it fit with your, as it, 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 let's not call it a larger project, it sounds too grandiose, but yeah, yeah. your concerns? I think basically it, it comes from the story that, that how the old industrial working class in Britain originally struggled for a secure sufficiency, and instead they got consumerism, which is not quite the same thing. And that model, so successful as it been in the Western heartlands, that's being replicated globally. And it seems to me to be an unsatisfactory and unsustainable and untenable alternative to security. And the two words, security and sufficiency. And you know, like the word enough that has been expunged from the vocabulary of globalism because nobody knows what it means anymore. So that everybody, everybody, no, everybody feels poor. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, Bill Gates is poor. Oh, I see what you mean. The Duke of Westminster is poor. Oh, the yeah. Queen is all poor. All my middle class friends are poor. We're all poor. Yeah, yeah. And you know, bakers are poor as well, and labourers are poor. Everybody is yeah. poor. So, what could be more a more wonderful uniting element in the world that everybody is joined together in the project to get richer, and it has it has no limits, and it has no ending, and it has no objective. And you say to these societies which have gone through this, what's the point of these societies? What are they for? What purpose do they serve? We're now asking questions about how happy we are, perhaps a little bit belatedly, but at least maybe that's a sign that there is still, there are, there are, there are obviously questioning voices about the, the function and purpose of, of... We in Britain dismantled the function of making useful things for daily use. They're too now trivial for our consideration, so we farm them out to the carceral industrial suburbs of Jakarta or Mumbai or Dhaka. So partly we've outsourced our lives. I mean, there's a quote, I think, from Oscar Wilde who said, you know, living, our servants can do that for us. And that's the, a kind of debased aristocratic model which now pervades... He's the... satirising that view, presumably. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So, but, but, but that serves as a kind of debate, it's a kind of degraded aristocratic model, which now um, the West regards as its birth, mo the majority of people in the West, not, not, not all, mm. but, but the majority regard as their birthright. And the people who fetch and carry for us no longer live behind the sooty laurels of the old Victorian city down there in the, in, in the slums. They live in places like Calcutta and San Paolo and Tegucigalpa and... and all these Mexico City, all these places. And, and what are we left with? We don't even know. And there, I think a lot of the, the soul-searching we have about our own identity comes from having destroyed what was palpably, materially a useful function. I think we're still looking for it. And if you, if you look for it in finance, or if you look for it in the entertainment industry, it's not quite on the, of the same order 
as things that are demonstrably useful to human survival.